This is the Mother Jones Podcast. I'm Jamila King in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, recording this from the floor of my bedroom closet. Since we're all working from home this week, what a time to be alive. Today, we're bringing you a second episode this week, something we'd hoped to play for you earlier in the week, but then the coronavirus pandemic news was taking off and we switched gears. This show is totally not about that, though. This is a beautiful radio documentary about trying to fit into a new life when the odds are stacked against you and the resilience you have to have in the face of that struggle. Stick around. We've seen the headlines about Trump's immigration horror show at the border. Children in detention camps, migrants drinking out of toilets, an end to asylum as we know it. But for many, crossing the border is just the beginning. As they settle into a new life here in the U.S., they have to figure out the basics. Filling out paperwork, getting vaccines, enrolling in schools. And those little things, they can be tough when you don't have a support system. That's when you really need a helping hand. Our Mother Jones reporters, Fernanda Echavity and Julia Lori, take you to a town in New Mexico, where they hopped in a car with a social worker and spent a day with him, driving around from family to family, helping them navigate the unique challenges they face. Fernanda and Julia will take it from here. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. We're walking into the offices of Las Cumbres in Santa Fe to meet with Raisi Yanez. He works as a family navigator, which means he's the sort of social worker slash connector for new migrant families in Santa Fe. Raisi is back here, and we can kind of grab him. Um, Las Cumbres is one of the largest social service providers in New Mexico. Buenos dias. Buenos dias, Julia. Last year, it started a program that provides support services specifically for immigrant families. Ready? Yeah, we can. Northern New Mexico is a pretty rural place. You drive 10 minutes outside of Santa Fe, a city of less than 100,000 flanked by mountains, and it feels like you're in the middle of nowhere. So a big part of Raisi's job is being in the car, driving from family to family. Just let me clean my car because I have kids. <laughs> How old are your kids? Three, two, and one. Oh, my God. Really? Wow. Raisi is in his mid-20s with a boyish face. He seems to shrink in order to fit inside his sedan. He's letting us tag along today and tells us that first, we're going to pick up a family from El Salvador, a mom and her teenage daughter who is disabled. They've been in the U.S. for almost three months, and they ended up in Santa Fe because Jacqueline, the mom, has family members here. Raisi is going to take them to a clinic so that Alex, the teen, can get vaccines in order to start going to school. It's 9 a.m. on a gray October day, and it's starting to get cold outside. According to the forecast, today may be the first snow of the season. When Raisi calls the family ahead of our arrival, he tells them to bundle up. So you were telling us where you're from and when you... I am from Torreón, Mexico. Este... My family, my wife was born in California. So how did you meet your wife? In Torreón. In Torreón. We, we are Christians, 
we we are musicians. My wife sings and I played, oh, wow. and we made a band oh, down cool. there. And she was the the singer and I was the bass player, and we fell in love. Oh like, my God, that's like magical. <laughs> Um, so we, whose house is this? This is where we're going to the first family right now? With the first family, okay. yes. I'm gonna not have this out just when we go in and stuff so we don't get scared, yeah. When we walked up to the one-bedroom apartment where Jacqueline and Alex live, Jacqueline greeted us with a huge smile. 17-year-old Alex seemed shyer in that classic, wary, 17-year-old way. She was sitting on a mattress on the floor of a living room-turned-second bedroom. There's not much room to walk around, and they tell us that six people live here. They're all family, but still, Jacqueline would like to have a place for just the two of them, so she started cleaning motel rooms to save a little money. We should mention here that Jacqueline and Alex's names have been changed at their request to protect their privacy and also ensure that this doesn't affect their asylum case. Mm -hmm. We get in the car and I ask them what El Salvador is like. Alex says it's pretty there, but she didn't really leave her house much. They'd been in Santa Fe for about two months by that point. They came here because one of Jacqueline's brothers had been living in Santa Fe for years. Jacqueline and Alex traveled from El Salvador to the Texas border seeking asylum in the United States. They'd eventually tell us about their journey later that day. But for now, they just needed to get the vaccines out of the way. When we ask how they're feeling about getting the shots, Jacqueline nervously laughs. But Alex, on the other hand, says she's fine with it. And like a true teenager, plays it up like she's not nervous at all. No. But the nerves do start to creep in a little bit once we get to the waiting room. A nurse comes out and says that even though she'd gotten the vaccines in El Salvador, she'll need to get them here again because to go to school, she'll need to show proof of the vaccines. It's not dangerous for, for the um, student. It just, you know, is something because we don't have proof we have to start over. But it's, so Alex is going to get five shots this morning. Three on one arm, two on the other. The side effects are just pain at the site, you know, soreness. And moving the, the arms is the best the best way to help move it through quicker. The nurse says Alex should try to move her arms around a little bit in order to help with the soreness. But the thing is, Alex can barely move her arms. Jacqueline points to her daughter and asks if the nurse noticed her disability. Alex suffers from arthrogryposis, a rare congenital condition that means that she can't move her arms much. They're locked straight down along her torso and her hands are perpetually curled up towards her wrists. Jacqueline tells us that she's taken care of Alex her whole life. They've spent every waking moment together, so the thought of sending her off to a new school in a strange place terrifies her. Alex only went to school for a few years back in El Salvador, and she hasn't been in a classroom since she was nine years old. So here she is now, at 17, getting vaccines so that she can attend public school in the United States. Uh -huh, para, para levantarla, cosas así. 
She's a little nervous that, you know, since she can't use her arms to help herself when she falls. Mm -hmm. um, when she was little, she fell a lot and mm -hmm. she hurt herself a lot. She mm -hmm. lost teeth. Um, so she's been injured many, many, many times because a, a, a short, a, a tiny fall yeah. for us is a really big one for her because she can't catch herself. So she's like nervous about tomorrow because she feels good when she can see her and she knows she can catch her if she falls. So tomorrow she won't be there to catch her if she falls. And she's starting to get a little nervous about tomorrow. Jacqueline has to fill out some forms before Alex can get the vaccines. And even though most of them are in Spanish, Raisi still has to help her decipher what she needs to do with each form. While we wait for Alex's turn and while they're filling out their forms, we all notice that it's starting to snow. <laughs> We've never seen snow before, Jacqueline says. We open the door and step out to the courtyard, and Alex, who was wearing cropped leggings and a hoodie and who had been complaining about the cold earlier, now she's not complaining. She's looking up at the sky and laughing at the tiny snowflakes that have landed on her mom's eyelashes. And Jacqueline can't stop smiling. For a brief moment, the anxiety and anticipation of the vaccines is gone. The uncertainty of their future is put on pause and their past troubles set aside. For a second, they're just catching snowflakes with their tongue. First time seeing snow. ¿Y qué tal? You like it? ¿Le gusta? We step back inside and Jacqueline says, that was so pretty. I loved seeing the snow. I wanted to see it in real life because I'd only ever seen it in the movies. <laughs> so Alex goes in and gets the vaccines. And she quickly comes out and says, the first one didn't hurt at all, but the last one sure did. Once back in the car, we wanted to take the opportunity to learn a little more about their time in El Salvador and about their journey north. Back in El Salvador, Jacqueline struggled to pay for her daughter's medications. To make money, she had a mini convenience store in the front of their house. They didn't have much money though, and it was tough to make a living because there are a lot of things that Alex can't do on her own. So Jacqueline had to be home with Alex full time. Plus their neighborhood had become a lot more violent over the past few years, to the point where the two of them barely left the house. Jacqueline and Alex traveled from El Salvador to the US-Mexico border last summer. They wanted better medical care for Alex, and they wanted to be able to live safely without constantly fearing leaving their house. The number of migrants apprehended after illegally crossing the southern border surged last month. To the highest the Trump administration's hardline stance on keeping migrants out is pushing asylum seekers to take remote and dangerous the routes the border, into and the... He's found thousands of migrants without lawyers, confused and scared. He joins That's around the time that the U.S. had hundreds of thousands of people waiting in border towns. For months and months, U.S. immigration officials had been making people wait in order to be able to present themselves at the port of entry before they could even ask for asylum. 
So Jacqueline and Alex joined a group of people who decided that they were not going to be able to wait in those border towns for that long, crossed the river into Texas with the goal of turning themselves into Border Patrol immediately. Ya cuando nos pasamos el río, ya, ya nos estaban enfocando con las lámparas, los, los, los oficiales, sí. Um, llegamos mojadas. They crossed at night, came out of the river cold and wet, and Border Patrol agents were already flashing their lights at the group on the U.S. side. The agents told them to sit on the ground, take off their shoes, and let their hair down. They left them there for a very long time. Alex says it was about three hours, and it was so cold. It was terrible. These are tough memories, Jacqueline says. I pause and apologize for making her relive this moment and tell her that we don't have to keep talking anymore. It's okay, she says. If it can do something, I'm okay to talk. Jacqueline tells us that the border agents didn't seem to care that Alex had special needs. They shoved the group in a truck, and with Alex's condition, it was a challenge for her just to get in and out of it. They were taken to a parking lot separated by what she calls large dog cages. That's where they were told to sleep. They were freezing. They were still drying off from wading across the river. And to add insult to injury, at some point along the way, Alex had gotten her period. Jacqueline says that they were left in these conditions for two days, hungry, desperate, and sick. She tried to tell the guards that her daughter needed medical attention. She said that her daughter's eyes started to get red, they were almost sealed shut, and nothing happened. She asked for a change of clothes. Alex's were still covered in period blood, but that didn't work either. Instead, she says, the guards mocked them in Spanish, saying, welcome to your castle. Jacqueline says she hadn't really talked about this until now with us. She hasn't been able to stop crying since we started talking about her time in detention. Alex is in the back seat, looking down and chiming in from time to time. I've noticed this before when talking to people about their experiences crossing the border. Despite everything that people have gone through, often conversations don't get emotional until they start talking about their experience in immigration detention facilities. I think, you know, it's not surprising that people break down at that point it, because it's quite devastating. That's Michelle Brunet of the Women's Refugee Commission. The shock, I think, sometimes of, of reaching that point and then being treated like a criminal really can be devastating and very, very frightening, right? This is what you were actually um, holding out for. You've made it through all these horrible things because you think along the way, I'm going to get to a safe place. And then when you get there, you are yelled at and told that you've broken the law and told that you have no right to asylum. And then you see where you are and it looks like a jail and it feels like a jail. And I think that that can be quite devastating psychologically when you don't know what's ahead anymore. You know, you start to wonder whether any protection is ever going to be available to you or are you going to go back to where you started and be in danger again, something that you already fled once.
It's unclear exactly why U.S. immigration officials let Jacqueline and Alex remain in the United States during the duration of their asylum case, but it's most likely because of Alex's disability. At least that's what should have happened. Under the Migrant Protection Protocols, most migrants, especially from Central America, are returned to Mexico to live in border towns while their case moves through immigration courts in the U.S. This is a program that a lot of people know as Remain in Mexico, and it was started by the Trump administration last year. The Trump administration announced today asylum seekers on the southern border will be forced to stay in Mexico while their immigration cases proceed in the United States. Since then, more than 55,000 people, mostly families with little kids, are stuck in this program. They're asked to show up to the border in the middle of the night, only to be bused to a courthouse in the U.S. where they will have a hearing and then go back to Mexico that night. Technically, Mexico has said that it would allow the U.S. to do this, but it wouldn't allow U.S. officials to send back underage migrants who are by themselves or to send people back who have disabilities, which is probably how they got through. Although activists on the ground have said that many times U.S. immigration officials are not following this rule. Jacqueline and Alex also had a place to stay in Santa Fe, an address and a family member who had agreed to take them in. So immigration officials released them on the condition that they'd report in with ICE and with the courts as needed. We pull up to their apartment and it stops snowing by now. Alex says she's not too sore from the shots, but she's cold and she's ready to go inside. We say goodbye, and Raisi tells Alex to be ready by 9 tomorrow morning. He's coming to pick her up and take her to her first day of school. Coming up, Fernanda and Julia talk to a man who spent time in one of those detention centers that was in the news last summer and is now reunited with a mom he hasn't seen in over a decade. And just a reminder, if you like what you're hearing on the Mother Jones podcast, go ahead to wherever you got this episode and give us a five-star rating. It really helps new listeners find our show. Thanks. Mother Jones stories you're hearing right now are brought to you by our listeners and loyal readers who fuel our work. Audience support makes up two-thirds of the Mother Jones budget and helps our team dig deep on stories that matter. Make a donation at motherjones.com give to keep our nonprofit newsroom humming. Again, that's motherjones.com G-I-V-E. Welcome back. You're listening to an audio documentary with Mother Jones reporters Fernanda Echavity and Julia Lurie. They're riding along with Ricey, a family navigator who helps immigrants adjust to their new lives. Back to Fernanda and Julia. Ricey's second family visit today is with Hector and Maria. Hector arrived in New Mexico just this past summer. He came to reunite with his mother, Maria who's been in the U.S. for more than a decade. And what is the nature of your visit today? What do you have planned to do? Su attorney le dijo que sacara su ID. Pero vamos ahorita ir al MBD. To get an ID. To get an ID. So in Santa Fe, you can get a state ID? Yes. No matter your immigration status? Uh, Yes. You you, you can get your ID. That's 
we're going to request more information. We have we we have some documents. We think it's good for get an ID. We pull up to their home, which looks similar to all the others in this public housing complex. Adobe, very southwestern vibes. And notice a small U.S. flag hanging by the front door. (laughs) Maria lets us in, and the first thing we see inside is a huge Honduran flag hanging on the main wall. Yeah, the U.S. flag outside, the Honduras flag, the big Honduras flag in the living room. Hector is ready to go. He's holding an envelope with the paperwork necessary to get an ID. He's 21, but could easily pass as a high schooler. His smile is infectious, and his black curly hair shines from a whole lot of hair gel. We get in the car, and right away, Hector opens up. He tells us that he left Honduras, and he hopped trains and hitch rides all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border. He says that he waited there for two months before he could present himself at the border to ask for asylum. He spent most of his time at a shelter. But something happened near that shelter that spooked him. The reason why he left Honduras is because he was pressured to join a local gang and his life was in danger. Well, at one point, while in Ciudad Juarez, waiting to present himself at the border, he saw someone that was associated with the gang that was trying to recruit him in Honduras, got spooked, and then decided he couldn't wait any longer. So he freaked out, crossed the river, and turned himself into Border Patrol. Border Patrol detained him and put him in an overcrowded holding cell in El Paso. First, it was 15 days in one place, then more than a month in another. It was a horrible story, he says. Last July, federal inspectors released photos from inside multiple Border Patrol holding facilities at the Texas border that showed just how terrible conditions were inside. Men in standing room only cells, unable to sit down, let alone lay down, wearing the same clothes for weeks, women and children sleeping on the freezing cold floor going weeks without a hot meal. Hector was held in those conditions. Sí, había niños pequeños, mujeres embarazadas, Y una vez quitaron todo el agua, oiga bien, quitaron todo el agua cuando me tenían ahí los ocho días encerrado y yo tenía sequía y estaba, mi, mi garganta estaba reseca, tuve que tomar agua del toiler. He says he had sí. been drinking water from the sink, but at one point they shut off the water and his throat was so dry he had to drink water from the toilet. He eventually got sick. He told guards he was feeling ill and they asked him to fill out a request form so he could be seen by a medical professional. It took days for him to see a doctor. And once he did, they said he was contagious. So they put him in isolation for eight days. Eight very long days. He slept on a cold cement bench and ran out of ways to stay warm in what felt like an icebox. So he tells us that he started to take wet paper towels and throwing them up in the air so that they would stick to the air vents, hoping that that would prevent some of the cold air from coming in because he felt like he was going to freeze to death. Hector was finally released on the 4th of July weekend. And as soon as he got to Santa Fe, he had to go straight to the doctor because he had pneumonia. He had to first get healthy before figuring out how to begin to have a relationship with a mom who he hadn't seen in 17 years. 
Okay, so we are at the DMV. Is that where we are? Yes. Earlier that day, Raisi had asked Hector to bring his Honduran passport, medical bills that showed his mom's address, and other documents, hoping that'd be enough to get him an ID. Fifteen. While we wait, Hector tells us that he's enrolled in ESL classes three days a week, and he's really liking it. He's starting to learn a little bit of English. And he's also found a part-time job working with cars. He's like, here you get, like, you can buy new parts. Over there, we have to make them. After about 10 minutes, a woman who works at the DMV comes over to check on Hector. She wants to make sure that he has the right paperwork filled out before his number is called. I should be. Can I see it? It does have... She tells him that what he has is not enough. Then he needs to bring back a letter from his ESL school and more documentation showing that he does indeed live in Santa Fe. So Raisi's going to have to help Hector track those down, and then they'll come back to the DMV, and eventually, hopefully, he'll get an ID. Before heading back to Hector's house, we stop by to grab some lunch. We ask Hector what he'd like. He says he's not hungry, but he does like Panda Express. Not so much of a New Mexico staple, but quite the stereotypical U.S. fast Chinese food. So we stop by to pick up food and bring it back to the house. But before we leave the strip mall, Raisi says that we have to go to Five Guys to try this delicious thing, a strawberry bacon milkshake. If that isn't quintessentially American. Have you ever, have you ever tried a strawberry milkshake with bacon? Ew. What? You don't say that. I said the same the, the first time they, they told me about that. What? Who has a strawberry milkshake with bacon? No, they don't. Gross. No, absolutely not. Would you try it? Nope. Would you? She'll try it. I would try it. <laughs> no, this is not some secret menu item. It's just a Raisi request. Even the guy at the register had him say his order twice because he wanted to make sure that Raisi was indeed requesting chopped bacon in his strawberry milkshake. So Raisi gets the milkshake, and naturally, he tries to get all of us to try it. I told him it would only be Hector and Julia because I'm vegetarian, so I was off the hook. A big sip. Julia first. Para que salga el bacon. So the bacon Yeah, you gotta like really get in there. All the bacon bits won't make it up the straw. All right, all right. It's good when it's sweet and then salty. I don't taste any bacon. Oh, there's bacon. It's very strange. It's very subtle on the bacon. <laughs> it's not it's not horrible. Would I order this? No. Would I have sips of yours? Yeah. ¿Y? El tocino así en pedacito o qué? Es que lo lo mezclan con todo, ¿no? No está suave. Sí. Julia's a fan. Hector is a fan. You've converted two people. As we drive back, Hector says that while getting here wasn't easy, he's starting to get used to his new life, one day at a time. He came to his mother's house, has cousins and siblings already here, so he's not totally alone. He's even found a group of guys to play soccer with. But one of the more challenging parts for him has been reconnecting with his mother. Maria has her own troubling migration story from 17 years ago. Back then, she had to make an impossible choice to leave Hector and her other children with their grandmother and migrate to the U.S. in hopes of providing for them. Once in the United States, Maria got involved with a man who, after having a child with her, was physically abusive. She went to the authorities and turned him in. And as a victim of a crime cooperating with the authorities, she was able to get a special visa for victims of crime known as a U-Visa. 
And it's through that visa that she was able to get Hector out of immigration detention. But it's still unclear if Hector will be able to stay in the United States, either through his asylum case, which is very much in limbo, or by having Maria apply for a U visa for him. After lunch, Hector and Maria were seated side by side at the kitchen table. And when we asked how it felt for them to be reunited, she teared up and said she was thrilled but really nervous at first. She worried Hector would reject her. Hector was brutally honest about how he doesn't feel too emotional about his mom because it was really his grandmother in Honduras that took care of him as a child. She's the one that he considers his mother figure. He even calls her mom, and he really, really misses her. Um, this is tough to translate. Um, he says that, yes, he knows that's his mom, but it's really not the love that he has for his grandmother because that's who he sees as a real mom. So he does get sad, but it's also not that, not the same feeling that his mom was feeling about this because he wasn't feeling that way about her. Reporting on immigration for so long, I've seen this theme again and again. The relationship between parents and children who've been apart for a long time gets really complicated and sometimes really fraught after they're reunited. From the big relationship stuff to daily life, they're having to learn how to be together again. She uh, actually, he's actually not fond of mom's cooking, <laughs> and sh- and he cooks for her more, and she really likes what he makes for her. Another thing they're figuring out is how to process what they've experienced. Hector has talked about his time in detention with other friends in Santa Fe who have migration and detention stories of their own, but he's not really into the idea of therapy. They share, and he shares, and that feels right to him. Maria has found a counselor through Las Cumbres, and for the first time, she's talking about her mental health. Julian Ford, a psychiatry professor at the University of Connecticut, says that in many cases, the best therapy is not necessarily conventional westernized therapy. That can be very helpful, um, and we certainly want to make that available whenever whenever it is sought and, and whenever it can be helpful. He pointed out that people don't always respond well to what we think of as traditional talk therapy or medication. It is actually being able to just be connected to one's community, to have opportunities to share one's story and get support from peers and other people like oneself who share similar values and traditions and have, a, have some shared history. Ford specializes in trauma, and particularly trauma among children and families. The immediate need when people are just simply trying to survive um, and find some kind of a safe haven is not... Uh, trauma therapy. It's really psychological first aid. When people are in the midst of trauma, it's not always obvious because you're not necessarily processing what's happening in real time, Ford said. 
There's a reason why it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And even afterwards, PTSD manifests itself in very complicated ways. Part of what we need to pay attention to very closely is that we often don't see some of the more obvious signs of post-traumatic stress from children or parents because they are so resilient and because they are so capable of coping, but the coping is at a cost. It really is enormously difficult physically. That's why then kids as well as, as adults can be more subject, more vulnerable to just physical health problems, medical illnesses. Uh, stress-related illnesses, um, and it's not because they're not handling stress, it's because they are handling stress and they have so much to handle. Last year, Las Cumbres set up a program providing mental health services for families who'd recently settled in New Mexico. But they discovered really quickly that dealing with trauma and dealing with mental health wasn't anywhere near the top of the list of things that their clients wanted. Families who had just arrived wanted to figure out the basics, where to live, how to support themselves, and if they would be sent back to where they came from. First, they need to do everything possible to be safe enough to feel control over their lives again, especially because their immigration cases are still uncertain and they could be deported. When we first got in the car that morning, we expected that Raisi would be having lots of deep, emotional conversations with his clients. And it became clear pretty quickly that that was not Raisi's MO. Yeah, I, I will. I try to make his day uh, like brighter, funnier. Like they can't forget what they left at home. Instead, of, like trying to remind them what what they're living, I try to take him out of there. And that's very intentional. Sure, maybe down the line, some of his clients will want to talk through what they've been through with a therapist, but for Raisi, the most helpful thing he can do is to help with the concrete life stuff, the vaccines, the driver's licenses, the housing, all those little pieces that together help build the foundation for a new life. And he'll do it all over again tomorrow. Thank you that, for letting us spend the day with you. Yeah, no, thank you. And yeah. it was a pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure to meet you. That's it this week for this special edition of the Mother Jones podcast. Like this coronavirus news is unprecedented and none of us really know how it's going to shake out. But trust that we will be there to the best of our ability to cover the news as it happens and bring you the latest. As such, it really helps if you go to wherever you got this show and give us a five star rating. It helps people find us and we'll love you forever. That's it this week for the Mother Jones podcast. I'm your host, Jamila King. See you next time. Hi, this is Molly Schwartz, a digital media fellow in the New York City office. Here are the credits for today's show. It was reported by Fernanda Echavri and Julia Lurie and produced by Fernanda Echavri. Amid the spread of the coronavirus, the whole podcast team is working from home right now. Um, can you show us one more time the closet? I... <laughs> it was executive produced by that voice you heard just there, James West. 
I think that looks like, wait, what do you think, Mark? And mixed and mastered by Mark Kalinowski, our managing editor. I think the biggest thing is just like how comfy it is to be in there. It was edited by Fernanda Achavri, one of our resident audio wizards. I did the recording for Coachella for you guys and when I did the retracks, I stood. So it's better to stand, I think. With additional production help from me, Molly Schwartz, the associate producer. And of course, credit where credit is due. It would not be possible to make this show without you, our listeners and readers. So please stay safe and healthy out there. And thanks. This podcast is brought to you by Mother Jones listeners like you who donate to keep our newsroom buzzing. Help us stay on the beat. Go to motherjones.com slash give.